before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special extended preview edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour, featuring the delightful Stephanie Pomboy and three very special guests, uh, Dave Ivan of Copenic Global, Adam Rosenswag of Going and Rosenswag, and James Devolos of Horizon Kinetics. We had uh, the idea to put this little panel together to discuss inflation. All three gentlemen uh, and their firms have done some extraordinary work on the subject of inflation. They've written some fantastic stuff, which you should absolutely delve into. You'll find them at copenicglobal.com, gorozen, G-O-R-O-Z-E-N.com, and horizonkinetics.com. I would urge you to read the writings of all three firms because it's uh, it's fantastic. And uh, as I said, the subject at hand here is inflation. We're going to talk to all three guys about um, how they think about the macro backdrop for inflation and also get into some of the ways they think it makes sense to play the continuation of inflation um, that they all seem to think is inevitable. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The End Game, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, Shifts Happen, and Chaos Theory, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Home. So, if you enjoy what you hear on this show, and you'd like more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join an exciting community today. And now... On with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Joining me, as always, whenever the world is super and terrific, it normally means that Steph Pomboy is around, because <laughs> that makes me happy. So, Steph, how are you? Well, it's super and terrific to be with you. Thank you for uh, arranging this. This is great. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, that's, I think that's a little, that's as, as always, that's a little um, deflective because you arranged most of it. Well, <laughs> you, you did most of the arranging. I did a little no, bit here and there, you, but most of it was you. You did the heavy lifting. You handled all of the technology aspect of this. And, and that's good because if I were in charge of that, no one would be hearing this recording right well, now. Well, see, this is why I don't <laughs> explain to you just how easy that is because then oh, you'll oh, drop me like a bad habit. Well, listen, oh, um, I'm just so impressed. When you talked about arranging, we should probably let people know exactly exactly what it is we've arranged because we have a yes. we have a, a an inflation panel I guess Should we call it a panel Steph or is that a bit too highfalutin what do you reckon no I think panel is a good word That's inflation politically panel. correct isn't it there's yeah, no so. no one we're not offending anyone with I think, panel I think we're appropriating <laughs> the, the the wood industry in any way shape or form so I think oh, we're okay oh, but we have joining us three fantastic guests Dave Ivan of Copenhagen Global Adam Rosenswag of Goring and Rosenswag and James DeVolos of Horizon Kinetics. And we are going to discuss the subject of inflation with all three of them. You know, they've all done some phenomenal work, Steph, on the subject, whether it be inflation as an idea, but more importantly, I guess, for this conversation in particular, what to do about it and what stocks to look at and how the commodities complex plays into that. I'm really looking forward to it, especially given what's going on in the markets right now. This, I think... I have a feeling that uh, what we're going to hear here is going to be very different from uh, what you're hearing on CNBC in yes. this moment. <laughs> of that, I have no doubt. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we find out and bring the guys in? Let's do that. 
Well, welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We're extremely grateful that the three of you could find time in your schedules to kick around this whole idea of inflation. James, Adam, Dave, Steph and I have kind of explained at the top of the show what we're going to try and do. So I think that the easiest thing to do is just kind of to jump straight into the conversation. I think, James, I think you're going to lead us off. Is that correct? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, my friend, the floor is yours. <laughs> yeah, so I think kind of when looking at our macro outlook, it behooves us to also look at where we've been wrong. And, you know, I was part, we were part of the crowd that thought something was going to break um, well before over 5% on Fed funds. Like maybe we thought maybe around a 3% range. Um, I guess we were wrong we, that they did get to as high as they've gotten to. Something did break. So Silicon Valley and First Republic and the others went under when Fed funds was around 4.5%. But the resilience of the economy has been remarkable and I think astonishing to almost all of the observers. And taking a step back and looking at where the assumptions were, I think the biggest thing that keeps coming back to us, forget the fact that there's a lag in interest rates and forget the fact that there's kind of all this, these nuances to monetary policy, it's kind of the fiscal dominance and how that has really put a lot of resilience into the economy. So by the end of this year, we'll have about $6 trillion of cumulative deficits, which has funded a lot of growth uh, into the economy, both directly and indirectly. Um, but the problem is the Congressional, the Congressional Budget Office uh, believes that that's going to result in over a trillion dollars of annual interest expense by 2028. And these very sanguine assumptions also assume uh, zero recession and continued deficits between about 800 billion and a little over a trillion for the next decade. So we continue to believe that kind of the only way out of this current mess is going to be nominal growth in excess of the cost of debt service for the federal government, because otherwise the problem just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the potential breaking point gets bigger and bigger. The only two ways to theoretically fix this would be austerity or a default, um, let's take those off the table for a variety of reasons, not the least of which, you know, the cure would kill the patient and, um, you know, kind of we've just gone too, too far here. So we think that the end game here is going to be either an implicit, more likely, or an explicit, probably not under the current chair of the Fed, target of inflation above two, probably above 3%. Uh, the outcome is going to be structural, volatile inflation, uh, higher but volatile interest rates. And the investment conclusion, which we're going to get into later, is going to be you really want to own a variety of real assets. I guess, Adam, you're, uh, you're next at the sure. T-Box. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and it's wonderful to be here and talking with you all today. And thank you uh, for arranging all this. You know, we are natural resource investors, and so uh, we look at things clearly through our own lens and through our own uh, outlooks and views. And what we see from a macro perspective going forward is a real inflection point in a period of much, much higher commodity prices. And the reason for that um, is, is as simple as it is complex. It's that we're going through a massive commodity cycle. And if you look back over the last 120 years, and that's how long we have pretty good data for, um, you see that commodities move in these big, big, big cyclical waves. And typically what ends up happening is you'll have a period of time where commodity prices are high, companies generate really good supernormal profits, it attracts investor capital in, 
Um, you know, everyone is just about as bullish as can be. And, and it doesn't, you know, you don't need a super long memory to go back to the middle part of the early 2000s when, you know, everyone was talking about the latest and greatest uh, Canadian oil sands project or the latest and greatest shale deposit or even, you know, gold and copper mines around the world. And certainly we remember some major, major busts and blowups through that sector as well. Money pours in, it chases new supply, and eventually all that supply comes online. It overwhelms the market, prices collapse. Investors who have underwritten projects at higher prices pour their money back out. Everyone talks about how an industry is dead and uninvestable. Ideally, even maybe Time Magazine or Business Week or somebody or Forbes writes a cover story about it. That's how you know the bottom's close. And you reset the new cycle. And this cycle that we've been in now basically topped out in 2010 and has been in a grinding, grueling bear market ever since. It's seen capital spending across the board cut 70 80%. It's seen huge diversions of energy and capital into what I would call really unproductive assets, which to me, the most unproductive are probably intermittent wind and solar, um, things of that nature. Cheap energy and cheap capital has allowed the huge proliferation of those technologies. And slowly but surely, we've been ratcheting this whole market tighter and tighter and tighter. And I think now we're finally at this point where where, um, supply is beginning to really uh, slow down. Certainly growth has slowed down across most industries. Demand remains extremely robust for all the talk of uh, traditional energy demand. It, it has never been more more robust, frankly, than it is right now. Uh, and, and we're in the process of moving from a period of surplus into a period of deficit. And what does that mean? It means that commodity prices are going to move a lot higher. That's going to be true across the board. It's probably going to be the most true where you've seen the most starvation of capital, and that's in your traditional energy, your oil and your gas uh, as well. But it's going to be true in copper. It's going to be true uh, in uranium mining where you know you saw a 90% peak to trough fall in the price of uranium. So I think you're seeing it across the board. Energy has gone from being about 15% of the S&P down to a low of 2% a couple of years ago. It hasn't been able to break 5%. You know, energy has been the best performing sector now for going on three years in the market. And you've seen persistent selling by all the generalists out of the XLE, out of the XOP. It doesn't matter. So, you know, I think that this bear market is... is run its course. I think you're in a sustained bull market move now, but asset allocators still haven't woken up. And and what that means is that the snapback is going to be more pronounced and last longer. And, and unfortunately for people having to deal with inflation, I think you're, you're going to have a tough time with higher raw material prices for the better part of the decade. Dave, why don't we uh, flip it over to you and give us, uh, give us your quick macro view? Okay, thank you. Uh, and thanks to uh, Grant and Stephanie for putting this on. I think it's very timely. As Adam said, I think we have three firms here that all look through our own unique lens, come up with similar conclusions, yet unique solutions. So I think it's a good time for this. We are 100% bottom up, but I'm happy to share the the macro views because usually as a bottom up investor, what we like flies flies in the face of the uh, top down macro story. Or here's one of these fortuitous times where they line up together. The cheap stocks are also the beneficiaries of a lot of top down trends that we're talking about. So a very bifurcated market, even more so than in 1999. They pay up for things they love and they are giving away things that are, are very cheap. A lot of the things that are cheap are beneficiaries from uh, any inflationary trends. And it's kind of interesting to see people give up on the concept of inflation. Uh, we think Milton Friedman had it right that uh, 
it's always a monetary phenomena. So people will say, no, it's about demographics or it's about the strength of the economy. Uh, you look around at economies around the world that are floundering, you know, Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, they do not have low inflation. So we think people have that wrong. If it is a monetary phenomena, the money supply is up tenfold since 2008, tenfold. And that's after the trillion dollar drawback they've just had. So uh, as we'll talk later when we get to the investments, that 10 trillion is already migrating through the system. Uh, but maybe that'll stop. Uh, as you've already heard before, it's highly unlikely it's going to stop. Uh, democracies don't have a tendency for supporting austerity. And uh, I'm not aware of any major politician in any country on the world now that is actually arguing for austerity. So I think that's something that's highly unlikely to, to happen. History and logic suggest that we're going to see a continuation of uh, what we've seen. If there's even a chance I'm right, people ought to have at least some part of their portfolio allocated to real assets and inflation beneficiaries. And uh, from where they're priced, we think the upside to their downside is very compelling. There's definitely a whole bunch of common threads there, which is going to make the various ways you guys are going to tackle this incredibly fun to, to discuss about. So, so James, why don't we bring it back to you and talk about how you guys at Horizon are looking to navigate this and, and your ideas around how investors should think about it. Sure. So you know, I started off with more of a, a top-down view, but we're also almost exclusively bottom-up. But I think that unfortunately in the current environment, you need to have a top-down view. Otherwise, you're kind of flying blind here. But fundamentally, looking at the supply side, we continue to believe that natural resources are one of the most compelling investment opportunities. And a lot of it just comes down to the fact that not only has, they, has capital been starved from these industries um, for, in some cases, decades, but there's very little incentive and there's a lot of political pushback to actually do the right things to balance the market longer term. But then that's also coupled with the fact that we have fairly resilient demand. And I think what a lot of the kind of the heuristic approach, especially with regards to energy consumption, looks at is efficiencies and electric vehicles in the OECD world. But the real delta here is the non-OECD world where, okay, China has its problems today, but then you've got a couple billion people in India, Indonesia, Africa, Central South America, where that's where the real growth is gonna be. And the other big problem is that we've basically spent 30 years importing disinflation in the form of cheap, abundant resources and cheap, abundant labor. A lot of that has been exhausted, and now we're competing with those same countries in order to access the same labor and materials. So we think the most pronounced uh, area is going to be in energy because we think that demand is going to continue to grow uh, for much longer than most of the international agencies and experts think, and then also plateau for a very long time after that. So in that scenario, the current capital expenditures just simply don't get you to where you need to be under any variety of scenarios. But one of the problems with investing in energy companies is kind of the capital intensity. 
So yes, there are one-off examples of very capital efficient companies, especially major integrated companies that have a lot of integration with downstream and midstream and different types of value added activities. But you're kind of pure play drillers. Uh, it's a tough business. You have high lifting costs, you have high cost of capital, you have rising reinvestment costs and reinvestment risks because the grades uh, of resource are declining. So our preferred modality to express a long-term structural view in energy is royalties. And that's one of the, the pillars of our real asset fund, the inflation beneficiaries, which at the end of the day, it's really a real asset fund with our unique take on capital light um, inflation beneficiary real asset companies. You know, in theory, all real assets do benefit to some extent from inflation, but those that benefit the most are those that can control the cost line. So it's fairly easy for all real assets to benefit on the top line, but if you can't control the cost line, you and your investors might not be all that much better for uh, better off from that environment. So at a very high level, again, royalties are basically, instead of doing the exploration, the drilling, the transportation, the refining, you're simply taking a revenue interest off of the driller's activities. So again, ultra simplistic, if Chevron or Occidental is gonna spend billions of dollars developing your land, you get a revenue, you have an interest on gross revenue. So they could be producing at, let's say it's $100 barrel oil, but their, lift, their break even is 90, it's not, but I'm just giving you a hypothetical example. You benefit from the nominal price appreciation regardless of their net benefits. So what that creates is an extremely high operating margin, even at the bottom or middle of the cycle, you know, 70% plus. Uh, and then almost all of that gets converted down into after-tax free cash flow. You would think that these businesses would be extremely richly valued. And in fact, in the private market, you're seeing very, very high multiples being paid for smaller digestible size royalty packages. So things in the range of let's say, uh, well, very low. So millions of dollars all the way up to maybe a hundred to 200 million. But there's really no scale to buy the really large packages. And this is evidenced by one of our top uh, picks in the US, Viper Energy Partners. So Viper is a subsidiary of sorts of Diamondback Energy. Uh, they have some of the best royalty acreage in uh, the United States, focused in tier one acreage in the Permian Basin. Um, they just did a deal where they bought about a billion dollar package um, in the Permian at a 15% unlevered free cash flow yield, which you're only paying for producing wells, drilled but uncompleted wells, and permits. So that 15% is at strip, and strip prices are backwardated. Then you have all of that upside from exploration at a 15% steady state yield at strip. The reason why that exists is there's only one or two players out there that could even bid for a billion dollar package. Viper got the deal because they were able to actually go in at about with about a quarter cash. So again, looking kind of a look through into Viper at the parent level, um, you know, at $90 oil, you're buying this company again at a steady state 15% distributable cash flow yield. 
Uh, they pay out about 75%. So you're getting at about 11% yield with 25% retained to reinvest and grow. And you're not paying for any of that optionality on the tail. So this is why we really love royalties is if they have 30 plus years of production, which they do, there's a tail there, which if you were to do a Black Shoals model on 30 years of oil and gas revenue with effectively zero cost, that would break the Black Shoals machine. It would be many, many multiples of the entire aggregate market value of royalties in the marketplace. Another interesting um, item with Viper, because of unfortunately the market structure that we're in, they were a partnership where they could basically pass through taxes, but when we reduced the corporate tax rate to 21%, they elected in a check the box election to basically convert into a taxable partnership. In the eyes of Standard and Poor's and MSCI in their infinite wisdom, that is not eligible for index inclusion, even though it's effectively a taxed as a corporation. They're converting to a corporation for precisely that purpose and will be eligible for index inclusion once that's completed. Again, adding kind of this robo bid because they basically have zero representation today because of the limited partnership structure. One other name in kind of energy royalties, if you don't want to have exposure to U.S. shales, is Prairie Sky in Canada. So Prairie Sky has almost 20 million acres, mostly in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. And a lot of people think about Canada, think of this thick, viscous, heavy um, oil sand. They do have some exposure to that, but if you drill down into the Canadian energy market today, their conventional production, which is basically the equivalent of our horizontal fracking, is growing with incredibly low break-evens and incredibly uh, value kind of middle-grade crudes. So again, you have this really long tail option for Prairie Sky where you know, a fraction of a fraction of their 20 million acres are developed. But forget production growth, which I think in, there is embedded very strong growth with zero expense paid by you as a shareholder. Right now, they're earning incredibly low realizations on their oil, which is basically Edmonton Light. That's not as bad as Western Canadian Select, but you can't get this really valuable mid-grade crude out of the country due to pipeline and export restrictions. There's also ACO Gas, which trades at a huge discount to Henry Hub and certainly LNG contracts internationally in Rotterdam and Asia. To the extent that there's any type of environment where they can access international prices, and we are seeing more LNG export and some pragmatism on that standpoint, uh, you have kind of an embedded uplift to the extent that they can realize better differentials over the fullness of time. But we like the company solely based off of the fact that you have this really long tail, could be over a century of inventory based on that very low developed 20 million acres. Um, and again, I think the market just doesn't appreciate the nuance of the royalty business model. People want nothing to do with Canada. So many reasons why this is underowned and unloved in addition to Viper, but you know, energy in general just comes out as very cheap with a lot of drivers that would correlate to this new world that it seems like we're all in, in um, agreement, we're entering a new economic paradigm where what worked for the past 30 years probably or almost can't work going forward, yet people have little to no exposure to the things that you actually do want to own. 
Phenomenal. That's great, James. Thank you very much. We'll keep sticking to this topic. I've got uh, a bunch of questions on that too. (laughs) We could be here all night. Adam, let's flip it over to you. Sure. No, thanks. Um, You know, one thing, I know we're trying to keep to the schedule and now you want to hear sort of some of how we position ourselves, but I'm going to tell you something else before I get into that because... Hey, you can um, go wherever you like. Well, the schedule is the schedule, but <laughs> Steph and I don't really care. We just want to talk to you. Right. It's not quite live TV, but but basically, you know, I, I have the mic, so let, let me go. You know, one of the things that we found that was really interesting, and I think it ties together what Dave was talking about before uh, as well, you know, when we're talking about some of the larger macro problems here in terms of, you know, fiscal dominance that James was talking about in terms of servicing the debt and all this money that's been printed and this Friedmanite, you know, approach to to monetary systems, one of the really keen observations we made looking back again over about 150 years, when commodities and real assets, as measured just by a simple commodity index relative to the Dow, right, so you have commodity prices, you have stock prices, just divide one by the other. When they get really, really, really cheap, like they did in the late 20s, the late 60s, the late 90s, and then again. Full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.